is a blood sport, and if you want blood, you got it! Back, 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 take it, take it, take it! Welcome to the No Lift Podcast, coming to you from Ireland, hosted by Arthur Lynch. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the No Lift Podcast with myself, Arthur Lynch, and joining me for this episode of the show... I am delighted to welcome back Hugh Gilmore onto the podcast. Good afternoon, Hugh. How are you doing? Uh, I'm not doing too bad, Arthur. It's uh, lovely to be back on the podcast. Uh, I've been listening intently to some of the recent episodes with Connor Heffernan, who seems to be trying to take over your position as host. And uh, they're great to, great to listen to. For anybody who hasn't been listening to those episodes, I've really enjoyed them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason I ask him on so frequently. I I love doing them as well. They're uh, they're always a lot of fun, and he's just he's just great. He's just easy to get on with. There's no ego about him. There's never any difficulty whatsoever. He's organised. He's punctual. It's just yeah. And a- any time you suggest something, it's just like yeah, let's do it. Podcast wise, this all sounds like a dig at me, as if you're saying I'm not punctual enough. <laughs> no, no. But uh, no, it's 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 been a lot of fun, um, and I'm glad you've been enjoying them. So, here's to uh, many more this year. Happy New Year and all that. Same to yourself. So, what's been going on with you recently? Um, so, recently I have been involved, obviously, in the Tokyo Games with uh, the Paralympic powerlifters, and they brought back uh, three bronze medals, which was phenomenal. Um, uh, for GB weightlifting and Brit- British weightlifting, para powerlifting, to give it its correct title, um, and then they smashed it at the Worlds as well. And a lot of them came back with uh, junior world medals and everything else. I think it was the biggest team we've ever taken out to the Worlds. So that's been it's been quite a hectic uh, 2020. What is it? 2021 that was. So uh, yeah, been uh, busy and exciting. Mm. Very good. And uh, so in in this episode, we're going to discuss motivational interviewing. And this is something that has become probably, probably increasingly topical in the last, well, I've certainly noticed it cropping up more and more in the last sort of two years or so uh, as it relates to coaching. Now, it didn't originate in the field of coaching, but it has been brought over and applied because there's a lot of areas where there's there's plenty of overlap where it can be, I suppose, potentially very valuable for, for coaching practices. But I suppose at the outset, um, if someone doesn't know what motivational interviewing is, could you give a bit of a background on, well, I suppose, the story of motivational interviewing and, and how it originated and effectively, like, what is motivational interviewing? Well... Motivational interviewing is described as a conversational style which helps explore a person's ambivalence towards behaviour change. And I mean, from a psych, that those are like psychology, a psychology definition of what it is. But really, what it is is it's, it's a way of you understanding how to communicate with somebody in such a way that you're likely to help them change their behaviour in a way that's productive and beneficial for them. And it emerged from two guys called Miller and Rolnick, uh, Bill Miller and Stephen Rolnick, who are clinical psychologists working in addictions. So it emerged out of addictions therapy. And if you think about gambling, 
uh, drug use, uh, alcohol, etc. Like those are all things which pull people in and create very resistant and difficult uh, situations for people and people who relapse and go back to their their old ways. And behavior change in that environment is difficult. And and this is the therapy that or the approach that has had the biggest effect is motivational interviewing because it talks about or it helps somebody communicate in such a way that you'll help somebody uh, change their behavior or get them to a point where they might consider changing the behavior. Traditionally, though, the approaches there have been confrontational and assuming that people want to change. And I think that's a big fallback is that, you know, we assume that people want to change. I think where the big jump here, people are like, why is this important for coaching is because we end up in a coaching situation where a coach thinks one thing, an athlete thinks another, um, a nutritionist that they're using thinks another, a physio thinks another. Or if you're in professional sport, you've got a multidisciplinary team, uh, like the environments that I work in. Uh, they maybe have, you know, eight different people on a team from performance, lifestyle, nutrition, physio, biomechanics, uh, coach, a point of contact, things like that. Um, then, you know, their, their local coach and their uh, program coach, you know, so trying to coordinate all those people. And the athlete, you might not understand what the athlete's needs are. You just assume that the athlete will follow this uh, world-class advice. And that's not how people work. Um, and the big thing behind that is that when you tell people what to do, the only way they can kind of express their freedom and autonomy is to do the opposite. Um, and we all know that because people tell us what to do things. And the first thing we want to do is not do it and tell them where to go. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Arthur? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, it does. And it actually, well, one specific instance where it does ring a bell is, um, I suppose, a, a difficulty I used, I used to have in my own coaching over the years where I used to call it the the bold school child analogy, whereby you and the client or the lifter that you're working with, there's a breakdown in the communication and they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing and neglecting to tell the coach for fear of like oh the coach won't be happy with me they're going to give out to me they're going to tell me i'm doing this wrong that kind of thing and th there might be a half truth in that but by neglecting to tell me it makes the situation far worse and um whereas had it been had it been caught earlier you you mightn't have got to that state so you i would approach that started by having a conversation with them and sort of saying look here we're we're on the same team here you know we're, we're working towards the same goal which is to improve you and uh to try and uh re reduce any kind of communicative barriers whereby you know if they feel like they can't tell me they did something i mean even if it's something that i might necessarily want to hear um I still need to know about it because we may need to change direction. If it's because, you know, they went too heavy in training or they did something that they weren't supposed to and then they hurt themselves or these kind of things where it's not like, as I say, like why I use the analogy of the bold school child because they might think, oh, I, I, I'm not going to tell them for fear I might get kind of effectively kind of given out to, you know. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I mean, what you're actually talking about there, if you think about it 
for our listeners, there's an element of judgment, which is the the person you're coaching thinks, oh, I'm going to be judged. And the coach, and again, I've done this as a coach as well, is like, why the hell are they not doing that? And coaches come to me all the time, why are they not doing this? And straight away, what that is, that reveals that the coach has a judgment about the situation. And whenever that coach shares that judgment and expresses, why are you not doing this? And, and confusion and, and annoyed that it's that hasn't happened. What that communicates is is not just that the coach wants change, but the coach is disappointed and judgmental of that person. And when we receive that, when we hear that, even though we might not like sit down and cognitively pick up on the fact that, and when I say cognitively, I just mean like you analytically break it down and think the thought of, wait a minute, because he's saying that, he must think I'm bad. Like we pick these things up. Um, we can read how people are responding to us. And we pick up the feeling of I'm being judged, I'm being found wanting. And because of that, then what, what occurs is the bold school child of I'm going to hide away and avoid this confrontation. And whenever the, you enter a conversation with non-judgment, what you actually do is you allow for whatever there is to be discussed. So motivational interviewing is actually, uh, you know, it's been transferred in, into lots of areas, including like suicide um, and suicidality, where, you know, if you think somebody might be going to commit suicide and the first thing you want to do when you're talking to, to somebody about suicide is tell them, you know, don't do it that doesn't really work because you're telling them what to do and actually um, what you need to do is you need to listen to them and understand why they're thinking like that so it's it's a I mean that's a very serious scenario but in coaching it's like right you need to understand the lifter but MI provides a pathway and a way of doing that and it does that by having like a, a what what is called in the their definition of it as a spirit i don't personally like that because it sounds a bit fluffy and you know a bit like you know some happy clappy hippie came up with it and to be the truth is like it is it is like it is a spirit you know people people are not psychologists get that a psychologist might call it philosophy but a better way to look at it is what's the intent um so philosophy spirit the actual mi intent what's your intent that you enter into conversation with and if you think about it, like a fireman will run into a building and he's got a big coat on, a hose, um, an oxygen mask and, uh, you know, a helmet, right? His intent is to rescue people and do things and help out. Um, a riot squad personal, you know, you can tell by what they're wearing. Um, but when we're having a conversation, we can't tell by what somebody's wearing, what their intent is, what they're doing or what they're there to do. So we have to listen to their words. So the intent that we seek to put out is one of partnership acceptance, compassion, and evocation. Partnership with the person, you're not the expert. You have expertise, but they have expertise in their experience. Um, you show compassion for where they're at because you want to understand that and, and have empathy for, the, for them. You try and evoke out their reasons. Now, we all know the, the meaning of provoke. Provoke is I say something that pries you into re a, a reaction, but evoke is whenever I actually ask you a question, that you then say the words that you know give you the meaning behind why you want to do what you do and then so partnership accept acceptance of where they're at um compassion and evocation those are the four elements of the spirit or the intent of the conversation but the thing is the, the you know those are nice fluffy words for want of a better term but how would you show those in your words 
and that's where the skills of MI come in. And I think um, for our coaches, a good a good way to understand that. And I'm going to I'm going to realize a monologue, and so I'm going to explain this. As a coach, Arthur, whenever you're giving somebody cues, one of the things I used to do as a coach educator for British weightlifting was I'd run a coaching drill where the coaches have to use only three words to coach. Then they have to use only questions and then they have to only use their body language to coach, no speaking. And what that constraint did was it made coaching, the coaching skills and the communication skills evolve and it changed the atmosphere of what the, you know, stay over the bar and finish the pool, for example. Uh, it changed the instructional, here's what you need to do for them to think a lot clearer about what actually is the message they're trying to put across. Um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, so, so would you apply it? I mean, I, I always uh, thought that how you would apply it would be in a environment separated from the field of practice or the gym or that kind of thing, where you, you're sort of in like a separate room and you're discussing. But the way you're, at least from how I'm interpreting the end of your uh, your last passage there, is that you're actually applying it in the training environment and to the actual cueing of the athlete, which is quite interesting. I didn't even necessarily consider it in that way. I think that's the thing is every interaction matters. And whenever you conduct yourself in a way that displays this intent, what you actually do is you start to live that and you start to actually, and that sounds again, hippy dippy, fluffy, fluffy. Um, but like you start to actually behave in that way towards all of the situations now there's situations when you wouldn't use mi but from a coaching perspective if i tell you that oh that was a good lift that's a meaningless thing for you to hear all i've done is said i judge you as having done a good thing when i tell you good lift um whenever i say to you how do you think that went that's an open question with no predefined answer which wants your understanding of the situation and that's an MI way of trying to understand the person's feelings about their training. And as a result, that provokes analysis and self-awareness as opposed to just being told good lift. As a coach, which do you think is going to provide better a better learning experience? Good lift or, or you know, how do you think that went? For sure, yeah, yeah. And I, I can see there how to relate that back to your previous point about how... Uh, you know, you, you kind of have a situation, you, you may have a situation where the coach is thinking or wanting one thing and the athlete is thinking or wanting another to try to get those two to converge effectively. The approach of asking the open-ended question, i.e. how do you think that went, uh, that seems like a good strategy for trying to, to get those two, uh, the coach and the athlete to converge in, in that, in, in their thinking. Um, you mentioned one thing there that I want to explore a little bit more, which is about the open-ended questions versus, I suppose, closed questions. So you've, you've given an example there of an, an open question. What would be an example of a closed question? And uh, not that like one, one is good and one is bad, but what would be maybe the, the limitations of using more closed questions as distinct from open-ended questions? So what we'd say is that, and an interesting thing about MI is because it's been classified and codified how to 
how to actually communicate in this way. We can measure someone's effectiveness. And what we look for is that you ask twice as many uh, open questions as you do closed questions in a conversation um, or more. So a closed question is whenever there's a predefined answer, um, a quantity uh, or a specific specific word. There's a right, wrong or a, a naming of something. And look, I'll demonstrate this to you now, if that's okay. Sure. So we're going to talk about your recent training. Um, I'm going to use closed questions to do that, and then the audience can d decide like how effective, which 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 conversation is better. When when did you last train? Last night, last evening. Okay. Are you getting stronger in the past three weeks? Uh, I would I would probably say no. <laughs> okay. Um, is are you happy with your training? Yeah. 100%. Have you any injuries? No, thankfully. Touch wood. Are you jacked and tanned? Uh, well, I'm not particularly tanned. Um, I'm in decent nick at the moment, I would say. You're jacked? Ah. That's a subjective thing. Right. So in that conversation, I've got very little information from Arthur. All right. I've got yes, no. I don't really know what's going on. Mm. Now, we'll just, we'll just change that for the listeners. Okay. We're going to go in with open questions. Arthur, last month, what's in, been interesting for you about your training? What's been interesting? Uh, well, in conjunction with my coach, we changed a couple of things basically brought the intensity down quite considerably and uh, it's helped with, uh, I suppose, mitigating a few niggles that I was having, particularly in my shoulder, um, lower back and knees. And the changes have been quite positive. And uh, as I was saying, not really suffering any any injuries at the moment or any uh, persistent pain and that kind of thing. So... Yeah, think things are going pretty well on that front. Your training's going well. What are mm. you excited for um, in the next month? Uh, hopefully more of the same. Um, I don't have any... Like, I'm actually in a bit of a state of ambivalence at the moment with my training where there isn't really... Like, I'm not working towards anything. I have absolutely zero ambitions to to compete in powerlifting right now it's basically i'm just back to where i was 10 or 12 years ago where i'm just training for the fun of it because it's an enjoyable activity and something i i just like doing but the actual objective progress uh, granted i'm still trying to progress but like i'm not going to get hang-ups over not adding two and a half kilos to a lift it's just not a not something that's overly concerning me at the moment. Right. So two open questions versus mm. all of those closed questions. And I now have a, a real wealth of information about your training and a real sort of wealth about your mindset towards the, the next month and, and what you're interested in. And, you know, we, those questions are nondescript. There's no defined answer. And they're really, really open. Um, and again, 
I could ask other open questions like, what are you worried about coming up? You know, and that would help me. And what do you want to change? And what might you need help with? These are all open questions, which will allow more quality information to get out. And when I know that, that helps me then go, right, well, how can I be best of service to you? Um, but that's only one one element of motivation interviewing. The other element of the, the skills, so there's in the skills section of it, there's open questions, there's affirmations, there's reflections and summaries. And in motivational interviewing, we want two reflections for every open question. And a reflection is how you show you're listening to somebody. So in what you've just said, I would say a statement like, you've got some niggles. That's not a question. A question is like, sounds a little bit Australian because it's like, you've got some niggles. They go up at the end with that intonation. Mm -hmm. You know the way Australians do that? Or if it was a demand, I'd be like, you've got some niggles. That's like a really firm demand and kind of like, you know, something's wrong here. But if I put put that out with an intonation that's just flat, um, then what that is, is that's me just offering, offering out an observation and you can take that or leave it. And then if I say, you've got some niggles, um, your coach is supporting you well, um, you're excited about enjoying training, those are just statements, and if I drop those in, you'll actually say more stuff and clarify, um, and you'll add on to it, and that makes the conversation even richer, but it demonstrates that partnership. It also demonstrates that I'm not leading the conversation too much, and it, it demonstrates that you know we're, we're being curious and trying to evoke out of you what it is training is for you. So, so if I was to piggyback off that just for a second, uh... So just something that maybe you could clarify for me is you ask the open-ended question, you get a good response and you make a statement, but perhaps the, the person you're interviewing uh, thinks that the, the statement requires some clarification. I, I'm Coming back to the kind of converging sort of analogy, is that another strategy whereby if the statement comes out and you think, oh, that's not entirely reflective of what's going on let me clarify is that again helping to converge the two together so that we're kind of on the same wavelength again is that the the thinking behind the thing, that yeah the thing about a reflection is that if i get it wrong it's not a bad thing i'm not deliberately trying to get it wrong although in some cases i might be hmm. but i'll talk more about that later if i get it wrong you'll be like no 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 it's not that it's this you know, so you'll correct me if I say, if I put out a reflection like, oh, you've been hampered by injuries and you haven't been enjoying training at all and, and you're not looking forward to the future. You'll be like, no, 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 I am looking forward to the future. I do enjoy it. But yeah, I have been hampered by injuries. So it's like you'll bring the clarification if I get it wrong. And that's the good thing about uh, this. It's an, again, reflections are non-judgmental. You just say back what you hear. It's a simple, it's actually called a simple reflection where you repeat rephrase or just continue on the paragraph and what the person's saying to add a little bit more to keep the pace of the conversation going does that make sense sure does it might be important to to note at this point although i probably should have said this at the outset you know conflict of interest statement just putting it out there that like you are someone who offers training in motivational interviewing and on my end, you know, I'm a friend of yours and I want to promote that. So we should probably just get that out of the way in case of think people are thinking, you know, um, 
perhaps there's a conflict of interest here, but yeah, I mean, like at the same time, this isn't some sort of uh, snake oil we're trying to sell people. This is well, well evidenced and well uh, grounded in a scientific underpinning. Massively, there's over 700 uh, control trials uh, of this being used across a range of domains in, in sport, uh, in business, uh, and obviously in clinical psychology. So this is actually as evidence-based as CBT, um, if not more presently, I think, um, given the recent research. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something that's growing um, and is definitely founded in evidence. Um, I, I think what I would also say to that is, yes, I do train people in motivational interviewing, um, but <laughs> link, link in bio, <laughs> but I'd also say, I think that's a tough one to get around. Like, mm. so, uh, so how may, do you... let, let me, let me just, uh, add a little bit more to that. Like, for instance, I know you've talked about how, um, there's the motivational interviewing and the REBT, which I forget what that stands for right now, but you've talked about how you were a massive skeptic of both of those initially, and now you offer training in both of them. So maybe you could tell us a little bit around the um, the story behind that of how you came around to to your current understanding and, and way of thinking. Okay, so initially the first person I heard about motivational interviewing from was through my mum who came back and said she'd done a course in motivational interviewing and tried to then do certain techniques on me from motivational interviewing. She tried to use the skills. And I said, look, this is a little nonsense because you can't go off and do, learn in a weekend something and then say you're like qualified in this this approach of therapy. Like you've basically done a taster thing. Um, and she was actually trained by Glenn Hines, who runs a podcast called Talking to Change for anybody who's interested in uh, a, sp a podcast that specifically looks at MI in lots of different contexts. Um, and it's it's one that I recommend. Not I don't recommend it more than the No Lift podcast. But <laughs> the <laughs> but the the thing is I initially thought like the problem here is like somebody going off on a weekend and doing um doing a, a weekend course in this and getting some qualification in it and thinking that you know they're highly skilled and qualified uh, is not right. But that's not what it does. It gives you the actual process for getting trained up in it is you go off and you do your two weekends. You then go off and go do another two weekends to do your level two and then another two weekends to do your level three. Uh, and then you have to spend like two years practicing, um, getting involved within the network, um, shadowing other people, getting feedback and reflecting on your practice. And actually then what you've got is a degree of competence. Um, and then at that point you have to pass an exam to get into what's known as a motivational interviewing network of trainers. So the process for actually getting to the point where I'm at um, is quite, quite robust. But the reason that I fell into it was uh, a guy called Rory Mack is doing his PhD in motivational interviewing and sport. And he eventually, he essentially invited me along to get trained up in it. Um, and I went along and uh, found it fairly beneficial. Didn't have much of a clue after the first day. It was a bit of a, like anything, like you get taught a, taught a lot of stuff, um, but it's actually in the practice and reflection, reflecting uh, on it, the reflective practice that you get 
which is different from reflections, which we've just talked about, you actually get build the competence. Um, so I've gone through his course and then did the, the follow-up courses um, and then done a heap of reflective practice. So this is putting it into practice. And I think the thing for me is when you walk in their room and you don't know what to say, it's really good if you know how to listen and show that you're listening because then you can actually have a conversation with somebody. And I think I've had to go into rooms where it's been quite difficult, quite difficult conversations. Um, and and this is where this, these skills come alive for helping you. Because I think too often in sports psychology and even in coaching, we just assume people are ready to change and don't actually have a way of communicating to check, um, are they ready for change? I've had conversations with athletes who've uh, who are with their psychs who've said they're fully committed and they've you know done this and they've assessed their values and they're all ready to go and two weeks later before a world championship uh, and two weeks before a world championship they're hanging off a balcony with a bottle of wine on Instagram and like that you're not quite committed to this competition if that's what you're doing you're committed to the party lifestyle so again this is the thing you need to be able to take people for where they're at and i think that's where motivational the other thing is don't believe me just check the evidence like just look for a meta-analysis a systematic review that's what we that's the standard we should be setting here yeah you know um yeah yeah um i'm conscious that i probably derailed your flow a little bit there about those last two questions so maybe if i was to just um jog your memory on where we were before so we talked so about I was talking yeah i was talking about the specific skills mm. um so talked about reflections and the right. idea that there's you can repeat rephrase or just continue the paragraph and that's just like adding a few bit few bits more there's another element to the reflections which is complex reflections and there's various different ones of those but what they do is they're more challenging reflections show you're listening complex reflections provide a little bit of like friction to like challenge the person's understanding. So I might go, on one hand, Arthur, you're, and this is a double-sided reflection. On one hand, Arthur, you're littered with injuries and you've had, you know, a, a tough time with them. But in another sense, you're actually enjoying training and going somewhere. How does that sit with you? And th that's two different opinions. And one is like, oh, I don't like injuries and that element shit. And the other element is, this is, this is great and I'm enjoying it. And when I clash these together, a better example might be, you really don't like smoking and you're concerned about your health, but at the same time you use it to relax and work. You know, those are two opinions a person might hold when you clash them together in front of them. They're sad. What that is, is that's knocking about their cognitive dissonance. It's creating cognitive dissonance and that's the mechanism for change. Yeah, I can think of many examples in that front, um, which, which, so it's, yeah, that's interesting. That's very thought provoking, actually. Um, we might have a chat about that after we finish the recording. <laughs> um, but, oh yeah. So the, the next question I had for you, which is, so I, I touched an earlier on about how I'm seeing motivational interviewing talk about it is becoming more prevalent in the last sort of two years or so, which is around the time that I first heard about it. But what are sort of the common misconceptions that some people tend to have around motivational interviewing or maybe some of the, I suppose, 
for lack of a better way of putting it, like, do people sort of have an overly simplistic view of what in what it entails? You know, they might think, oh, motivational interviewing, that's the one with the open-ended questions, right? Yeah, I mean, the other big thing that motivational interviewing has is affirmations. Uh, affirmation is a complex reflection which reflects back somebody's strengths, skills, or values which are useful to them um, on their on their journey towards their goal. Uh, and that's specifically how you build confidence and you need confidence to change your behavior because if you didn't have confidence, you wouldn't try something new or difficult. Um, a lot of sex will talk about the theory of confidence, but who's actually telling you or how to apply this in the, in the real world? And this is the, the way you do it. But to go into how it's misused is that people take these skills of open-ended questions, reflections, uh, affirmations, and then the summaries and just go, oh, I have these skills. And I've got some techniques like a scaling ruler, which is one that I'll cover in a minute. Um, and I, I use these techniques on people. And that's the misconception that you do MI on people. If we think back to the foundation, the foundation is partnership, acceptance, compassion, evocation. If you're doing something on somebody, that's not in partnership. Mm. If you're doing something on somebody, that's actually not accepting them for whether that. If you're doing something on somebody, you're not showing compassion for how they currently feel and understand themselves in the world. And if you're doing something on somebody, it's not really evocative, that's prov prov provoking. So the biggest thing is that people go and learn MI and take away these jazzy skills. And every time they run into a problem in application, it's because they're not actually leading with what's the intent of my conversation. And you can think of this like, I, tr tr I was talking with an athlete the other day about decision making uh, between sets and how do you decide whether or not to go up. And the big, one of the, one of the things we put in the flowchart was what is the purpose of this session uh, given the context and in, in terms of relationship to competition or closeness and also the qualities that the session is part trying to de develop in that block. So the, the bigger goal of the training block needs to be how you judge your actions in a training plan. You know, if you're gonna modify training, you go, what's the big goal in this training block? That's how you change things. You don't just go, I'm changing it because today I feel like doing some uh, RDLs on a Swiss ball with, you know, a sandbag on my head. Um, you don't just say do that. You go. How does this meet the demands that we're or the stimulus we're trying to create? It's the same with MI. The foundation is hit that partnership, acceptance, compassion, and e evocation. So that's the first thing. But there's a great paper by I think Bill Miller called Ten Things MI Is Not." So it's not a therapy. It's a conversational style. It's not uh, things you do on people. Um, it's not you know self-determination theory although self-determination theory is like the, the applied or the academic arm of of what this is based on under but this actually evolved separately from that so this emerged from practice and the way this emerged was they recorded therapists and found out what did the therapists do that were successful and the successful therapists did more open questions than closed questions the successful therapists did more reflections than than uh, open questions so this emerged from good practice. It didn't emerge from just like, we'll rip this out of the sky and see what's there. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a great paper in that. I think I'd recommend people just read it. 10 Things MI is not. Um, I think the other thing is, it's not easy. It's really difficult to, mm. to get good at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, that became apparent when you outlined, you know, the process to become effectively 
MI trained, you know, you have the two initial two weekend courses and then a further two weekend courses and then two years of trying to apply it before you can say that you're, I suppose, properly uh, competent in the, the techniques. Um, uh, I suppose a lot of that, you know, say two year period is probably like it's it's like it's like relearning a skill effectively because you're trying to relearn your conversation style and uh you probably have ingrained habits that you're you're trying to change in how you approach a conversation with you know if we're talking about coaching you know a conversation with a with a client with it with a lifter um does that make sense makes 100 percent sense mm. if you think of fits and posner stages of learning You've got novice where things are very clunky. Then you've is it novice? No, it's beginner. Then it's novice. So beginner is things are very clunky. Novice is things smooth out and you can group things together. And then autonomous or advanced is when things become sort of second nature. And you go through the exact same thing, learning to do motivational interviewing. I mean, we could demo this, right? I've just taught you what a reflection is. Okay, I've taught you that. A reflection is we repeat or rephrase something or just continue on the paragraph. I'm going to set you the challenge. You do this to me and see, can you just use reflections for the next, you know, two minutes or so in a conversation? And look, if you can do reflections as good as me, right? Just using one word, right? Not even a whole sentence, just using one word. We'll see how that goes. Like, see if you can get some of those in. And if you can't use one word, a good way to sort of put them together is it sounds like you're experiencing this or it sounds like that is a good way to sort of set up a frame for a reflection. But we'll give it a go. I'll give you an, give you an open question there uh, to start off the conversation. Off you go, Arthur. Tell me about uh, how your work uh, setting up the motivational interviewing course has been going recently. Uh, it's been quite challenging, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, it's caused me no amount of stress and everything else because while I enjoy doing it and everything else, uh, I'm a one-man uh, show with three other jobs on the go and this is uh, something I only am intended to do once a year. So it's quite stressful with the organisation and admin of it and just creation of resources and also trying to push the boat out. Um, I've recently recorded... A heap of people um, who are like going to be demo people for me to use for education videos uh, on MI. So yeah, it's it's stressful and difficult, but I'm enjoying it, and it's a worthwhile endeavour. Mm. Stressful. Yeah, very stressful. Um, I have too much on my plate, Arthur. I've, I'm, I'm a busy man, and I actually don't have time anymore for working with people. So uh, yeah, it's. It's good to be busy, but at the same time, it's like, I think a lot of your listeners will probably understand like work-life balance is, is deadly whenever you're in a self-employed or in a, in this type of an industry. Mm. Overwhelming? Yeah, at times overwhelming, but not always overwhelming. Um, um, yeah, it's just, it is what it is really. Hmm. Mm. Autonomy. Yeah, I mean, it's I I am in control a bit, I suppose, but it's just it's the grind, mate. Just like you know, keep moving fast before you get in the coffin. Grind. 
right stop me <laughs> you're freaking me out because you're getting the words but i can tell i can see the cogs there's like sparks coming out of your head you're like what did i say yeah. how did you find that uh, <laughs> stressful <laughs> right yeah. okay so it, it wasn't like it wasn't it wasn't easy and, and again it was also a little mm. bit forced in that like we could tell when you said autonomy i was like i'm like what the hell is he saying that? That's a, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a weird thing. So it's like, how smooth can you make it? How can you make it fit in naturally? And again, that's that's the same in the same way that you would practice, um, you know, a deficit deadlift. What you've just done is a training drill that I put people through, mm. which is, can you actually try and communicate with just one word what that person said back to you and summarize it and, and put it back to them, because that then forces growth and adaptation in your communication skills and your language. Yeah. So again, for our listeners, try this at home. Just try and reflect back in one word um, what somebody said to you whenever you're having a conversation. Just drop a few in and see how difficult it is. Yeah, yeah. No, the one word uh, stipulation was what made it very challenging, uh, particularly that last bit. Um, I suppose I wanted to kind of say... Um, are you in control? Do you feel you're in control? That kind of thing. Um, but you limited me to one word, so that's why I said autonomy. Well, now, if I said, yes, I'm in control, or yes, I feel in control, mm. what does that tell you? You've just, you've closed the conversation down. Because that's a closed question, whereas these reflections have allowed me to speak more. And part of the, the, the thing in MI is that we want the person to talk more than the person doing MI with them. So the more I talk, the more you know about my situation and the more you, I can be helped by you. So talk time is important. We want to aim for 80, 20, 20 percent uh, the coach or the person using MI, 80 percent them. And I'm not saying a therapeutic conversation. It might be different in a coaching context. Um, so, yeah. Very nice. Okay, I, I kind of have most of what I want to ask uh, in relation to motivational interviewing completed at this stage, but is, is there any aspect of motivational interviewing that you would like to talk about that I haven't, as of yet, offered you the opportunity to do so? Well, I suppose my view would be there are times when you wouldn't use it, and it's important to note that. And the times when you wouldn't use it, maybe are uh, whenever you don't have there's a there's a precious commodity of time, and there's a high element of risk or danger. You know, in the middle of uh, somebody driving fast, and you're in the car with them, you you're not going to say, oh, "How do you feel about your speed?" <laughs> you know, you're going to say, "Slow down." <laughs> you're going to get me killed. Do you know what I mean? Um, so. Again, context is context is important. Uh, it's not MI is not a, a magic soup that everyone drinks and it, it gets things done. It's part of it. And the big thing about it is, you know, once you've got my motivation and my understanding and you've evoked my understanding of, of what I want, uh, then that's when you come in with your expertise and you go, right, well, as your coach, here are a few things that I, I'd like to share with you. Is that okay? And that's the active ingredient in that you'll change. But MI is about the motivation to change. So MI is not the active ingredient. It's getting the person to the door, ready to, to go in and, and get the training done. 
uh, or whatever it is. So the, it gets them ready to change. It doesn't. It isn't the change itself. So I think that's something. But the other thing is, I think uh, for me, like having a conversation with somebody you don't know is a really difficult thing. MI's given me the confidence. I could talk to anybody now. I could go in and say anything they want to anybody and start off a conversation and it'd go very well and they'd think they'd had the best conversation in their life. But I'd be working very hard during that uh, to make them think that. Um, and I think that's really beneficial in today's society where you do need to actually you know, build relationships with people. That's how what a lot of work's done. But the other thing about it is when you do MI in a group, so there's actually group training in MI where you can... Uh, use MI in groups, you can actually then use that to facilitate, you know, team building, you know, asking open questions to the group, ensuring everyone's brought in, um, you putting back those reflections to the group, clarifying and, and trying to understand what the group thinks. You use the exact same stuff um, in a group setting as you would do in an individual and you get the mo motivation of the group. Now, I just straight away think of GA teams and the amount of complaining and moaning that happens around pre-season and championship times when who's getting picked and who's not getting picked and what decisions are being made by managers. There was recently an NFL manager who uh, pulled the players in uh, at the, close to the end of the game and I know this because it was on Twitter and <laughs> basically said, right guys, we're in this situation, what do you want to do? And they all voiced their opinion. It says, okay, you agreed then? Yeah, okay. And the players went out and tried to play and they lost. <laughs> it, was the wrong, it was the wrong thing. But the point is, he asked an open question, he got their views and they all bought into what they were going to do. I mean, that's that's good management. They're all putting it 100% in the right direction. They all feel empowered. You know, that's where getting good at MI is really useful for managing other people. Um, so, yeah. Would, would you maybe argue that it was like right idea but just the wrong time? you know, maybe should have been done the week beforehand or something like that, it, you no, know, I mean, if, if it was possible yeah. to do. I mean, in, in that scenario, it would be, I for performance purposes, I would say if you haven't planned out what possible scenarios you have, you know, you're missing a trick and you learn for that for the next game. I think what I'm talking about there is that that coach, some people slated the coach saying he lo lost control of the group. Other people said he was amazing because he empowered the athletes. Um when you judge performance on a simple outcome, it doesn't mean the process was good or bad. Right. The process will definitely contribute to it, but I think that's just a nice example to highlight. I mean, let's put this the other way. If I, and you know this, and you're going to smile when I say it, if I, if I came in here and I said, this NFL coach did this and it worked and they won and everyone's awesome and they're all happy, you'd be like, here, that sounds crap. That doesn't sound like evidence-based. That sounds like anecdote. <laughs> so it's funny that you know I'm talking about the process, but you're going, you're you're highlighting. You know, if it was reverse round, you'd probably be challenging me the other way. Yeah, that's 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 true. I mean, if it if it had worked out, he'd look like a genius. But again, it's yeah. yeah he, the, 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 there's more nuance to the discussion than that. I think. Yeah. Just to finish up, you. For listeners that have hopefully hopefully enjoyed this podcast and they want to find out more about motivational interviewing, um, maybe they, they're interested in doing the course, could you give some uh, recommended resources on motivational interviewing for people and maybe direct them towards where they can find out more about the course? 
So I actually had the privilege of being asked to do a talk with Stephen Rolnick, who is one of the creators, uh, or yeah, one of the creators or people who've done the research and found out about this and, and applied it of motivational interviewing. Uh, and that was for UK coaching and their coach developers to help them help other coaches develop. Uh, that talk is actually linked in on the link in my bio and you can go there and listen to a whole talk of me and Stephen Rolnick talking with other coaches about applying MI. Um, the other thing is I my courses are, are basically set up in such a way that if you do the, the all-in courses, it's called, that's aimed at coaches and that's aimed at a taster. Uh, coaches and, and professionals, that's aimed at a taster kind of introduction to MI. But if you do that and you then want to go on and do your stage one, uh, you get all your money back from the all-in course and that comes off the price of your uh, stage one course. So it's set up as a, as a kind of way of, like, you can come in and taste it and if you like it, you know, it's a good investment because you get your money back. But the other thing is, the way I operate is if you're not happy, you can have your money back anyway, because that's how I do business. Um, so, yeah. Um, but the stage one, I only run the stage one, two and three uh, once a year because I don't have time and there are limited tickets for that. And it's nine months out and it's actually probably going to be half sold by the time this podcast comes out, if I'm honest. Um, so, yeah, move fast. Yeah, fair enough. Get or just get in touch with me and we'll have a chat. Get it while it's hot. Mm. Right. Love it. Okay. Thanks, Hugh. Uh, I, I think we'll uh, we'll finish up there. That was a really uh, interesting and thought-provoking and at times challenging <laughs> podcast. So thank you for giving up your time to, to chat to me about it and to share your knowledge on motivational interviewing. Arthur, can I just say that um, I really appreciate the effort you put into the podcast and that actually, you know, you've really contributed to the growth and development of, of knowledge and entertainment uh, within powerlifting. Well, thank you for that. Well, how do you feel when I've said that? Um, I'm not sure if you're trolling me. I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trolling you, but that, that's a genuine thing. And actually, you know, that's a nice reflection and an affirmation of, of something you've done. And that's why you got a wee warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Although, so I can tell you're a little bit scared because you don't trust me. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah. And also, uh, I also need to do a big shout out. Uh, thank you for sponsoring this episode, Hardigan's uh, Chainsaw Repairs and Mechanics. That's been uh, wonderful services that you've provided uh, to the people. That joke is just going to go way over everyone's head, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, you. Right. Take Thank care, you. and we'll talk soon.